You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Sure is a delight for me to be part of this storied Lenten series I've heard a lot about, but I get to participate in for the first time this year. And I sure am grateful to be participating amidst so many good Christian friends, so many people who have welcomed Wilma and me so warmly to Birmingham, and so many good friends and supporters of Beeson Divinity School. We sure are grateful at Beeson for the long-standing relationship our school has had with this church. And we hope you know uh, how grateful we are to all of you for your love, for your prayers, and for your support. My sermon text today is Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. This is found in Luke chapter 6. The Sermon on the Plain is similar to, but not the same as, Jesus' more famous Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. It was delivered on top of a hill. Sermon on the Plain is Luke chapter 6, was delivered from a level place. A lot of the same themes are discussed in these two sermons, but the sermons and the contexts are different. I don't have time today to read the whole Sermon on the Plain for us, so I'm going to start at Luke 6.17, and I'll end at Luke 6.49, but I'll skip some verses for the sake of time. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. 
a version of this in the Sermon on the Mount says, built a house on sand. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The word of the Lord. I often wonder these days how many Christians in the Western world believe what we profess about God and his will. Of course, many of us affirm the right things about God and the teachings of the Bible. We identify as believers. We're Christians on the outside. But how many of us are Christians deep down within our bones? How many of us are rooted so deeply in the things of God, united so closely to the risen Lord Jesus that we bleed Christian faith? How many of our lives have been so transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul says in Romans, that our most basic inclination, at least much of the time, is to trust God, follow him, and do what he says? The kind of faith the Lord wants from us is much more difficult to cultivate today than it was long ago. A famous scholar once wrote that before the age of the Enlightenment, that intellectual movement of 18th century Europe that fostered modern skepticism, higher biblical criticism, naturalism, materialism, and many of the other isms that have eroded Christian faith, Before the age of the Enlightenment, most Westerners assumed that the Bible stories were true, more real and reliable than anything else. And they interpreted the world in relation to those stories. But after the Enlightenment, this scholar added quickly, most Westerners assumed that the teachings of science were true, more real and reliable than other forms of knowledge, and they interpreted the Bible in relation to those teachings. Before our modern age, in other words, the Bible absorbed the world. But ever since, this man suggested, the world has absorbed the Bible. Consequently, Christian scholars have had to work harder than ever before to defend Christian teachings against critics of various kinds. And even good Christian people harbor instincts shaped more regularly by secular forms of learning than by the word of God. I believe we profess in the words of the father of the epileptic son in Mark chapter 9, but Lord, please help my unbelief. It's very difficult these days to build our houses on the rock. Our scripture text today is from the Sermon on the Plain. It packs quite a powerful punch. If you experience conviction as you heard it just now, that's good. That's the response you're supposed to have. It's meant as a wake-up call to all of us. And believe you me, I'm preaching this sermon today as much to myself as to anybody else in the room. It was preached first to Jews who were complacent about their faith, but it works well at jolting people like you and me out of our complacency. In fact, if you are like me, you've professed a traditional Christian faith for many years. But you're also pretty comfortable You've never really suffered much persecution in life, at least not by the standards of the global Christian church. You've always had enough. You've sometimes taken your faith for granted, and you've criticized others, I know I have, who've struggled more than we have. 
Jesus wants to call us back today from glib Christianity. He wants to steer us clear of hypocrisy and help us practice what we preach more persistently. The Sermon on the Plain was heard by three groups of people, the 12 apostles, a great crowd of disciples, and, quote, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. It's the second sermon of Jesus that was recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the first being one that I bet some of us will remember, recorded in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus preached in the synagogue in Nazareth, which did not end well for Jesus, we'll recall. People tried to push him off a cliff after the end of that sermon. Jesus begins this second sermon in Luke, this sermon on the plain, by encouraging the poor who put their trust in God and by warning those who were rich and were living worldly lives. He tells the people to love their enemies and to stop judging others, finding fault with them hypocritically in ways that tear them down. This was difficult to hear for many nationalistic Jews who were rightly upset by the Roman occupation of Israel and who thought for good reason that their law was the best way for them to keep covenant with God. Jesus tells these folks trees are known by their fruit and he encourages them to bear good fruit in their daily lives. He then concludes by exhorting them not merely to call him Lord, but to act like he's the Lord by doing what he says. One would think that this sermon would have captured the attention of these folks who had been witnessing such powerful healings and exorcisms in this part of the Gospel of Luke. In the time that remains, I don't want to address this sermon as a whole or go phrase by phrase all the way through it. We don't have time for that. Rather, what I'd like to do is focus our attention on the conclusion of this sermon and then apply it to our lives as modern Americans. So if you will, let me repeat just the last four verses of the sermon. Luke 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Do we live like Christ is Lord? Or do we merely say that Christ is Lord? Are we building on the rock or merely talking about the rock and really building on the sand? There's a lot at stake here. Indeed, eternal life is at stake. We've all heard survey data that suggests that most Americans still say the right things about God and the Bible. According to a Gallup poll, two-thirds of Americans now claim to be Christian, and more than one-third claim to be born-again Christians. 71% of us claim to view the Bible as either the actual Word of God or the inspired Word of God. 
71% of us think that heaven really exists. 64% of us think that hell really exists. But back in 2006, when the Barna Group asked us to identify our number one priority in life, most chose family, 51%, over faith, a mere 16%. And in a recent Pew survey, only 45% claimed to read the Bible at least one time per week. In a recent Lifeway survey, only 32% of Protestant churchgoers said that we read the Bible every day. Anecdotal evidence raises other concerns. Most Christians I know best spend more time on sports than we do on the Word of God. We spend more time watching shows or searching the web than we spend reading the Bible. Our plans for retirement are mostly R&R. We're clearly hedging our bets regarding life in the world to come, even investing more of our money on stuff we can't take with us than on building the kingdom of God. Many of us today would pay as much as we can afford to extend our earthly lives for even just a few more months. To use the language of the Puritans, we do not seem to have weaned our affections from the world. We rarely speak with one another about heaven anymore. What do these things say about us? Our faith, our priorities, our loves. I wonder sometimes how to account for the discrepancy between what we profess and what we do with our lives. I wonder how deeply we believe what Jesus says. Perhaps we too often fail to live as though his word were true because we really don't trust very deeply in his promises. Perhaps we trust more in mammon or at least hedge our bets because deep down inside we're worried that this might actually be our best life now. Perhaps we sometimes rush to judgment on the lives of other people because it's just too hard to trust the judgment of the Lord or to live as though he's sovereign over history. Perhaps we build our house on sand because if we're honest with ourselves, we prefer beachfront property that we can enjoy now over the prospect of a mansion in heaven. Don't get me wrong, I like beachfront property myself. Uh, my wife Wilma, who's here with me today, will testify. Our own family has enjoyed beachfront property over the years. At least if you can count lakefront property in the Midwest as beachfront property. Uh, I'm not against beachfront property. You can have that and a mansion in heaven. But I want in this Lenten sermon to ask us to check our hearts, check our priorities, check our guts with respect to these things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hedging our bets is very dangerous. It's a sign of unbelief. We hedge our bets only when we lack faith that they're sure. We build our houses on sand because constructing them on the rock requires deep, costly investment. Building on the rock, though, is the only way to reap a reward for eternity. The Lord is telling us today to maintain what I sometimes call an eschatological perspective on our lives. Do you know this word eschatology? It's a theological word that refers sometimes to the study of the end times, 
It refers at other times to the ways in which God breaks into history and shakes up our lives. And it refers always to the reality of God and divine things amidst this mundane world. So God is encouraging us today to believe so firmly in the reality of what he says that we stake our lives upon it, both in faith and in practice. Do you remember what Jesus said in what we call his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 about living like it's true? We call it the Olivet Discourse simply because he preached it on the Mount of Olives next to Jerusalem near the end of his life. Stay awake, he pleaded with his friends near Jerusalem, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Are we awake today, keeping watch until he comes? Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians about his own eschatological perspective on daily life? For me to live is Christ, he said, but to die is gain. Do we believe that? I'm hard-pressed between the two, Paul wrote. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Do we share Paul's perspective? I fear that some of us do not. Let me conclude by suggesting a couple of practical applications of this sermon on the plane. Application number one. In today's world, if we're going to do what Jesus says, many of us are going to have to spend more time in his word. I hate to say it, but it's true. Part of the reason why the faith of so many people is shallow and built upon the sand is that our minds are filled mostly with things other than the things of God. The percentage of the input we receive from week to week that comes from the word, Christian fellowship, and prayer is pretty tiny when compared to that from other more worldly sources. We simply have to spend more time hearkening to the voice of Christ, getting to know him and his ways. Application two. To quote from James chapter one, we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's time to put to death hypocrisy and lip service to Christ, and be Christians through and through, putting to practice what we preach. I want to challenge us today, and I'm challenging myself as well, to think of one teaching of Jesus that you find difficult to practice and work on it this week, asking God to help you grow in obedience to that teaching. Permit this church history professor to conclude this sermon with a lesson from the past. During the time of the Nazis, not everyone in Germany caved into Hitler's will. Some sought to follow Jesus at great personal cost. The most famous of these was the pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a very well-known man. He's the author of the classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, which is a great Lenten read, by the way. Bonhoeffer taught us in that book to avoid what he called cheap grace, or what we today might call 
easy believism and to be real disciples living self-sacrificially in service of God and neighbor. When Christ calls a man, he wrote, he bids him come and die. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. Bonhoeffer perished trying to practice what he preached. Quite literally, I mean. He resisted Adolf Hitler in the name of Jesus Christ and was hanged in a concentration camp just two weeks before its liberation by the Americans. This may sound strange, but I am trying to be more like him during this holy season of Lent especially in his willingness to give everything to God. Will you join me as we follow him and other people we know today who are like him, as they follow Jesus, giving our lives to the Lord and the building of his kingdom? Let's die to ourselves and the attachments of this world. Let's lose our lives for Christ Let's do what Jesus says, living resurrected lives in the power of the gospel. God help us. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.